Guys, it's a privilege to be in God's Word. As Bates said, we start a new little book this morning. It's the book of Ruth. It's one of the only books of the Bible um, titled around a woman. It's only Ruth and Esther that are titled around women. Um, and it deals with some incredible topics. If you don't know your Bible that well, that's okay. We're going to be doing some um, learning together this morning. We're going to do quite a lot of interaction. So get ready for small groups and little chats and things like that. All right. So we're going to do some of that. Um, and if you're not sure where it is, it's about that far in your Bible. Okay. So it's about an eighth of the way in. I'm just aware some of you might not know your Bible at all. If I can just say a hello to Pete and Jan, I love having you guys here. These guys took me into their home when I was 18 years old. I lived with them, they mentored me, they parented me in many ways, just loved on me, and I just delight to have them sitting with us um, this morning. Guys, we're going to be speaking about the story of redeeming grace. That's really the story of Ruth. It's It's a story of a lot of pain, a lot of life's pain, and God sovereignly weaving all sorts of things together. We're going to be speaking about how um, that applies into our lives, and we're going to speak about a lot of different topics over the next six weeks. But this morning, I'm going to lay a foundation for us, and like I said, it's going to be a little bit more interactive, and I want to show you in part how I've studied the first piece we're going to do this morning, which is verse 1 to 5, so that it's instructive to us on how we read God's Word. Like when we come to the Bible, how do we actually read it for ourselves? That's the, that's the biggest part of what I'm trying to get across in some way um, this morning. And the reason for that is that one of our, we have seven key vision statements in this church, and one of them, it's actually number three, and if you go to Exploring Membership next weekend, this is what they'll be talking about. A large part will be what we believe, what we stand for, these vision statements. Number three is that we want to be a word and a spirit people. What does that mean? That's, we, we call that Christianese, which means it needs a bit of explaining if you're not used to church or used to church language. The word simply means the Bible. This is the word. When we say we want to be a word people, it means that this is our instruction manual for life. Not YouTube, not TikTok, not anything else. This is our instruction manual for life. That's what it means. The Bible is what we're passionate about. It's precious. It's valuable. We want to learn how to study it. We want to understand it, right? The Spirit simply means that we are not just intellectually engaging with this book. It's not a textbook. We don't just read it for information. We don't just read it to try and understand a little bit more about the world or ourselves or anything like that. The Spirit is what sets it apart. When we read it, the Spirit comes alive and He awakens us to what it means. That's why we read with the Spirit. We're a Word and a Spirit people. If we read this book without the Holy Spirit, we are just reading a book. The minute that the Holy Spirit comes alongside and begins to show us what this book means, we begin to have explosive life change. Things change. It challenges us. All right, are you with me? So what we're going to do, very simply, we're going to look at four, there's lots, but we're going to look at four Bible reading tools. How do you read God's Word well? Okay, write them down. If you're not good at this yet, even if you are, write them down and think about how we learn these things, right? Then we're going to take those four tools and we're going to apply them to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. And interactively, we're going to look at how we can use those to see what does this text actually mean. All right, are you with me? I'm not sure. Are you with me? Right, thank you. So this is the first thing, and we're going to do this just now. But the first thing always is that we start with prayer. I wanted a longer title than that. I just said pray. But actually, I want to say that we start with prayer. We pause in prayer. We meditate in prayer. We pray at the end. We pray through it during the day. All of these things. Do you know, in school, do you ever have those moments where, if you remember, sitting where the the teacher was teaching probably in English about a, a poet or someone, and they were trying to tell you what this poet really meant by this poem? Did you ever have this moment where you kind of went, really? Are you sure? Because that seems like a real stretch. Right? That seems like a far... I, I've often, when I was in those moments, I'd think to myself, I wish I could sit with the poet. I wish I could ask them what they meant. Right? Wouldn't that be great? That's what we get to do. We literally get to sit with the one who inspired the book, who wrote the book, and we get to say, Holy Spirit, what does this mean? 
help me understand. I'm stuck. It's difficult. It's, the Bible is a difficult book. I'm stuck. I don't, know, I don't know where to go. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. We pray when something jumps out at us or something challenges us. We pray and say, God, help me. I see it here in your word. I don't know how to do this. And then we'll see this quite a lot today. But we pray when something troubles us. The Bible is a very troublesome book. There's parts of God's word that are extremely difficult to understand. And sometimes it troubles me. I read these, these passages, even one of the ones I'm going to use this morning, I might get there, in Deuteronomy. It's, it's hectic and it troubles me. And I read it and I have to go, Lord, show me why this is here. Show me why this is important, all right? So that's the first tool. Number one, pray. Number two, you should be able to remember this. Don't start with me in 2023, right? Don't start with you in 2022. It's the other one. We have to find another one for 2024. But this should be easy to remember. It rhymes. Don't start with me in 2023. What this means is that we must ask the them and the then, question okay we're going to speak about this a little bit so that you get this concept but who are these people that this book is about Ruth right who's this about it's not you what's the then that's the setting when did it happen so guys we do this so naturally we do this all the time you turn on the tv you watch a movie right what's the first thing that you start to figure out about this movie it's filled with info on them and then if you're watching a World War II drama versus a futuristic sci-fi, it's pretty important that you know which era you're in, who they are, and when it happened, right? If you look at it through the wrong lens, you're going to completely misinterpret the story. If you think it's about World War II and it's about World War you know, 2080, you're going to come out with a very, very different understanding of what the movie was all about. Think about the clothing that's used in movies. Think about the expressions that they use. Think about maybe just even the writing on the screen. It was 1928, right? What are they doing? Context. Helping you understand them, helping you understand them, who it's for. I like to think about this. There was a, I went on a preaching workshop recently, and there was a great illustration of a telescope. Can you throw that, that telescope picture up for me? You should have it there somewhere over there and I don't know if I don't know if Devin was good enough to manage to get the there we go look at that right so what happens with a telescope if you look at it through the wrong way right have you ever done that you ever seen a kid looking at binoculars the wrong direction or telescope what happens it functions completely opposite it actually does worse so suddenly the thing is not closer it's further away Often it's more blurry, it's more hard to make out what's actually going on in the details. If you start with today, if you start with me in 2023, it's like looking through the telescope the wrong way around at the text. You start with today, you're looking through that way, you go through the context, by the time you get to the text, it's so blurry, it's so far away, it's so messed up, you have no idea what the original Bible author is actually speaking about and so we have to look through the telescope the right way round. can you say with me right i am not ruth okay now for the guys can you say with me i am not boaz all right i am not naomi these thank you very much if you have no idea what those names mean and it's your first time in church this morning, these are the characters in the story of Ruth. Right? My iPad keeps on turning off this morning. But it's, it's hugely tempting to read God's Word and to immediately jump to, Oh, that looks like me! Right? That's my life. That's my situation. Look how God saved this person. He's going to save my business. Yes! That's the huge temptation, right? Remember the telescope. Now, with that said, I do want to say that God's Word is incredibly instructive to us. It does apply to us. It does apply to me in 2023. That is still the end of the telescope. The end of this telescope is still how does God's Word move in my life and my family and my marriage today. That is still how it applies into our lives. But it is critical that we do that in the right order. 
Okay, you with me? That's the second key tool. The third one is very quick. It's just this. What does the text show me about the gospel, which simply means good news? Right? Even though we're in Ruth, even though we're in the Old Testament, Jesus hasn't even come yet. What does this text teach me about God? What does it show me about pointing evidence, pointing to Jesus, pointing to how God wants to save? Right? What that simply means is that Jesus came to rescue us from our sins, and we can actually see it all the way through the Old Testament. It doesn't just start at the death of Jesus. It's the entire Old Testament is actually shadows showing us the gospel. So that's the third way. And this is kind of linear, but obviously there's a lot of, you know, it's not like they're not silos. You don't do one complete, then the next one, but it's silo. It's, it's, it's bleeds into each other. The fourth thing, finally, we get to me in 23. Number four, how does this then apply to me today? What does God's word want to challenge in my situation, in my life choices, in my decisions? What does God's word want to change? And importantly, how does God's word teach me that I'm empowered to live differently? All right. You got that? So if you want a photo, there's a little, there should be a summary, a slightly shorter summary, I think, maybe. No? Get a photo of that one over there. Rebecca, you're doing so amazingly. Thank you. Um, Let's read Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1 to 5. Won't you, if you haven't already found it, you're probably not going to. So it'll come up on the screen for you. And let's read together. Thinking through these four tools, right? In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women, One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. That's familiar. But about ten years later, both Madlon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons and her husband. All right, so what's our first tool? Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word... We ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would teach us, you would show us what you want to show us this morning. We'd get all the way to what you want to do with us in our lives, but that we'd also be able to look accurately at what the author was writing to his audience. And we pray, Father, that your word would do so much more than just tickle our intellect this morning. Father, we want your word to go deep into our hearts. We need you to change us. We need you to break into our lives, into our circumstances, and to do the things that you so wonderfully do in changing, renewing, restoring, bringing hope where we are hopeless. We love your word, and we ask that this morning as we look at it that you would speak with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, pray. You can keep praying throughout the sermon, right? Later on you'll be praying for it to end. What's number two? What's number two? Don't start with me in 23. Don't start with me in 2023. That was really easy in this passage, right? (laughs) No one wants this life. Husband's dead. Two sons are dead. They left with nothing. So none of us are kind of going, "Mm, yeah, that looks like me. I think I must be a limelech, right? Short life. What do we do? We look at them and we look at then. So let's look at the text for clues, right? And this is where we start starting to get interactive. What do you see? What's the first thing that you see that might help us to get our setting? What's the very first thing that you look at that goes, okay, how are we going to find out what is going on? Anyone? Anyone want to venture a guess? Come on, Zach, give me a guess. In the days where the judges, is that behind me? 
<laughs> Rebecca. <laughs> In the days when the judges rule. Okay, why is that important? Well, what days were those? This gives us a setting. This is like on your movie, the little thing comes up and says 1950, right? We know where we are. So what are the days when the judges rule? Anyone got any ideas? How do we find out what are the days when the judges ruled? We read? Oh, the book of Judges. Yeah, there's a whole book. It's actually the book just before Ruth. And it tells us all about what happens in, the, in, in this time, in the time of the judges. So let's do that a little bit. This is one of the key ways that we find context. You try to place the Bible story. Where is it? Where is it? And it's actually trickier than you think because you think Ruth is written in the time of Ruth. It's not. Later on in chapter 4, you'll find actually that the author is referencing cultural things that they used to do that they no longer do. So actually it's some hundreds of years later that this book was written. So it's actually written to a different group of people, but that's not important for right now. What's important for right now is that this book clearly orientates itself. It says we are in the time of the judges. So let me tell you a little bit of historic context, right? If you don't know the Bible that well or you're new to church, this is especially for you. There's a nation, God's chosen nation, they're called Israel. They end up in a terrible place in a land called Egypt, which we're still familiar with today, Israel and Egypt. And in this place, they go into slavery. But in slavery, and even before they got there, God had been promising them a own, their own land. They were a nomadic people. That means they had tents and cows, and they moved from place to place. Probably not cows, probably sheep and goats and things like that. But they moved from place to place. God had promised them their own land. And they began to call this the promised land. This was the promise of the land that God was going to give them, right? But then they're in Egypt for more than 400 years in slavery. It's a horrible story. You can go and read it in the end of Genesis and Exodus. You can go and read the story. Finally, God miraculously orchestrates their escape. That's mostly what the book of Exodus is about. That's what it means. Leaving one place, exiting, going to another place. Exodus. They get stuck through their own sin for 40 years in the desert, 38 to be exact. And then Moses and Joshua, their two key leaders, they begin this leading them into the promised land. And you can go and read that in Joshua. You can read about it in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus. All these books are telling this incredibly important story of them finally, finally getting to the promised land. Can you imagine the relief, the joy you go and read even the books that are so boring when you think like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, like what are these books about? When you think about a nation that's been in slavery for 400 years, they have nothing, no police force, no judicial system, no civil law. And so God begins in his kindness to help them to establish all of these things as they become a nation on their own. All right, that's just a little freebie. When you read those books, you can have a little more grace for what God is doing in that setting. Now, that's a huge part of the Bible, but that's not where we are, right? We just get in context. We are in Judges. Judges starts like this, after the death of Joshua, right? Now we know where we are, and what happens is that book, this book goes on to describe Israel descending into sin, and breaking the covenant that they had made with God, where they had said, we will follow you, we won't worship other gods, we won't marry people from other nations, we won't do this, we won't do that. We now begin to see them going back on all of those promises and doing exactly what they had said they wouldn't do after the death of Joshua. They, dis they go into disobedience, and eventually their nation is in chaos. Right? You can go and read this, Judges chapter 1. It goes... The 12 tribes of Israel, and it's quite depressing, it basically says Judah didn't drive out the people in the land. Benjamin didn't drive out the people in the land, which was what God had said that they needed to do to occupy this promised land. So they did a half job. Chapter 2, we read this. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said to the Israelites, just listen to the language. I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, their false gods. But you disobeyed my commands. Why did you do this? 
So now, God says, I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When the, angels of, when the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly, i.e., bad news. Chapter 2 again, verse 10 says, After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. You go and look, you can do another whole study on Baal and what a terrible God he was and how they would sacrifice children to this, this altar, this, this idol. It's awful. But they abandoned the Lord, the God of the ancestors. And again, the author reminds us who had brought them out of Egypt. He had done these incredible mighty works. Instead, they went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashereth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to the raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to the enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned and the people were in great distress. Right? This is helping us understand what? Verse 1, what was it? In the time of the judges. Zach, you should be a preacher, bro. Then it says, then the Lord raised up judges. At that point, you suddenly realize, ah, oh, this is the context for Ruth chapter 1. This is the moment we're going into. He raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of the ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. And then verse 19 says, But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. In other words, they get worse and they get worse and they get worse. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Later on in chapter 3, it says they intermarried with these people. Israel's sons married their daughters. Israel's daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. All right, have we got a picture of in the time of the judges. We could carry on a little bit. I'm not going to for the sake of time. But if you go down into chapter 3, it starts to now list judge by judge. It starts to tell you the story of their lives. There's Othniel is the first one. He serves for 40 years. And the only one I want you to note is that the very second judge is the judge of, the judge of his, his name is Ehud. Ehud, but he is the king that is sent to, sorry, let me say that again. The king that is sent to dominate Israel and to destroy Israel in that period is the king of Moab. All right, that's all you need to know for now. And he does it for 18 years. They are under the enslavement of the king of Moab. That's right in the beginning of the story. All right, and then this story ends terribly because this pattern just continues throughout the book of Judges, each time that the sin gets worse and worse, God has to deal with them more and more severely. And if you read the book, you actually, if you had to highlight, you'll find repeat phrases over and over. You've already seen, you've already seen some of them as you're busy reading. There's these, these phrases of the people that they didn't follow God. They gave themselves over to other gods. It's like on and on. It says the same things. And one of those repeat phrases is this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. All right? That's one of the repeat phrases in Israel. Does it sound at all like anything you've ever lived in? We're not in 2023 yet, but just while we're thinking about it, everyone does what they see fit. I'll describe sexuality as I want to. Don't put your truth on my truth. Right? My truth is my truth. I do as I see fit. It's not a 2023 problem. It's a 
4,000 years ago, human problem, people problem. All right, so that helps us understand, right? In the days of the judges, nice, light, cheery moments. Woo, you with me? A dark time. Now, we're looking through the telescope the right way. We're looking at the text. We're looking at the context. We read the next line. It says there was a famine in the land. Interesting. Two questions. I mean, there's lots of questions here. It's, it's, it's important to be curious when we read God's word. It's very easy to just read and, you know, oh, there was in the time of the judges, there was a famine and there was this man and he just, you know, you've got to stop. You've got to be curious. You've got, what is this famine about? And there's two questions that immediately came to mind for me. Is this just, is this just a random famine? A weather pattern? Early global warming? Or has God caused this famine? That's the second part, the second question, right? And because, because we're now looking through the telescope the right way, I would contend that through the book of Judges, through the lens of looking at the context of Ruth, we know exactly what's caused this famine. Because, uh, if I didn't know that yet, it would just be pure conjecture. But because we understand the book of Judges and we understand what God has promised, and maybe you've read Deuteronomy, maybe you've read Leviticus, when you go and you start looking in there, you'll suddenly see that the kind of sins that Israel are committing at the time of the writing of the book of Ruth, God has explicitly and repeatedly over and over and over again warned that one of the punishments he would send on them if they did these things was famine. Repeatedly, explicitly beforehand, God was saying, if you do these things, I says, I will make, in Deuteronomy, I have it there, but I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but he says, I will make the heavens, is it up there? I will make the heavens bronze, I think the, the one of them says. The sky over your head will be bronze. The ground beneath you will be iron. But it's like, it's not one or two like random phrases, guys. You go and study it, there are loads of them, 50, 60 plus references to God being concerned about people turning away and this being one of the punishments, right? And the more you look at it, looking the right way through the telescope, you begin to realize this is not just a random weather pattern. This is not just a family who decided to immigrate. Kate and I are going to the UK. This is not a story for us, God willing, right? It's not just a story of a family immigrating. This famine is about a nation in rebellion. It's a famine about God having warned them and now God judging them. And later on, we'll ask the question why. But for right now, that's what it's about. All right. Are you following? Are we still together? All right. I know it's a little a bit of a long way to do it, but I really feel like if we can if we can grasp some of how to read God's word together as a community because this is not a Sunday activity. This is a us community everyday activity. If we can grasp some of that, man it's going to serve us well. Even just in the study of Ruth, if you if you're reading this book again and again over the next 6 weeks and you're coming already with curious questions and and observations that you've made, you're going to get so much more out of this preaching series than if you just come on a Sunday and, and it's the first time that you're engaging with the text. So you can see some of these things I'm, I'm just saying. There's one of the ways that we look for context is just look for phrases. What does it say? It's obvious. It's right there. It's jumping at us, right? Look at the other texts around it. Look at Judges. Look at Deuteronomy. Look at King David even later on. Another way, another little tool to find what the original author was trying to say, and none of this is news for us, is you look for repetition. What is coming up again and again and again? It might be twice, it might be three times, but look for repetition. Why? Because in any, any book you read or anything, any repetition is what? Emphasis. They're trying to highlight something. You need to remember that this author who wrote the book of Ruth, they're not sure who it was. It might be Samuel, but they're not sure, right? But whoever wrote this wrote it to a specific people with a specific purpose. They're trying to show them something. And so they're writing as authors. They're actually trying to pull out and emphasize things. So in little groups, 
just wherever you are, say hi if you're brand new. Sorry, I hope this is not too intimidating. But find a few friends and in little groups, just read these five verses together. Rebecca's going to throw them up on the screen for us. And just look for the obvious repetitions. Just look for the same thing being said twice or three times. Go for it. If your group is finished, then ask the question, well, why do you think he's emphasizing these things? You can also go there, but just throwing it there, keep going. All right, let's come back together for now. We'll do some more interactive stuff again um, just now. All right, so this is... This is the risky part where I ask you what you found and hope that I haven't missed something myself in the study. I may well have. All right. It's only five verses, so I should have done all right. All right. Who wants to throw out one, one, of, one of the first ones? Let's throw out the different things that came up multiple times and let's talk about them. Death. Death. Okay. We're going to get there just now, but Yes. How did you see that? Because it doesn't actually have the word death. On repeat? Okay. Husband died, sons die. Yeah? Can, can you hear what Meg's saying? Okay, I'll repeat it for you, so just, you can tell me if I'm saying this correctly. But they emphasize Naomi and her aloneness in the text. So I don't know how you see that. So I've, I've got the same thing here, but I just want to, how did you see that? What words were you looking at? Or? So the fact that they repeat that her husband and son died, and they yeah. actually link Naomi to Ruth and Orca. So there's the separateness that the Israelites law wouldn't have had any kind of um, structure for her daughters to actually really be linked to her now that Yes. So daughter-in-laws are not actually linked to her anymore, but there's other laws there that we need to go and explore and figure out, like, what are their obligations, etc. Did you guys, so I'll pick up on what Megs is saying. Did you guys notice the repeat phrases, two sons? Did you see that? Two sons, two sons, two sons, both two sons. So I've got it five times. One, two, three, four, five is a reference to two sons or both, Right? Rich, go for it. So they went into the land of Moab. So three times, I think it is. So the land of Moab, they, in verse 1, they sojourned in the land of Moab. In verse 2, in the country of Moab and remo- remained there. And then later on, there's a more obscure one where it says they married Moabite wives. So there's three repetitions of Moab. What else? Where are they from? Where, what's the repetition there? So Bethlehem, so he wants you to know that they are from Bethlehem. The first time he says it, a man of Bethlehem in Judah. The second time they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. There's a repetition there. Any that we're missing? We've got died. I see died there, Tom. There's two references actually with exact died. Died, died. Very dead. Dead then very dead. When you die twice, you know you're gone. Any others? So this one, this one is a little bit around what Megs was saying, but it's, the reason I'm pulling it out is that if you know anything about Old Testament biblical literature, it's highly unusual for women to be mentioned at all or very little, but to be mentioned multiple times and to be the emphasis of the story from the very beginning is fascinating. So if you look in verse 1, it says, Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. Often it's just the man's name. You don't get, and we're not, we're not having a preach on that, okay? That's another, I'll, I'll leave that to someone else. But his wife, Naomi. Then later on, verse 3, Naomi. And she was left with her two sons. Later on, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. You can begin to see the emphasis around this. All right. So what does that all mean? We take this repetition as a way of trying to help us figure out what's going on. What's the context? I'll give, it a, I'll give it a stab for you. Here we go. The first thing, the very first thing I saw was that there was this repeat of Bethlehem. That came out from Sean. 
It's where they were from. And when you go and look back at Judges and you understand Egypt and all of that, basically I think all that it's saying is that they were God's chosen people in God's promised land. That's what this, I think the author is trying to emphasize. These people, this Abimelech and Naomi and their sons, they were God's chosen people living in God's chosen land, God's promised land. But where did they go? Now we see the next repeat. They went to the land of Moab. Okay, now that might mean nothing to you. Or you might be a Bible nerd, and this is your moment to shine. Right? Who knows anything about the land of Moab? What do we know? Where did it start? Anyone can tell me where the land of Moab started? Where did the Moabites come from? Esther Rose. Really gross story, right? About Lot after Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just him and his two daughters left and they go and live in this cave and the daughters get their dad drunk. They seduce him and they have children with him and one of those children is Moab. And that's where the Moabite line starts from, right? Who said reading the Bible was boring, people? That's where it starts from. Anyone else know anything else about Moab? Should I just tell you? Go. Ruth was from there. Eh? <laughs> Give that guy her bells. Ruth was from there. Yes, she was. Anything else? That's right. So they, that was with the story of Balaam. You remember where the donkey spoke to him? And Balak was the king of Moab. And God, so there's actually more to that story. If you go and read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you'll find out that God had explicitly said to Moses, leave the ancestors of Moab alone. Because they were from Lot. They were from Abraham's, Abraham's nephew. God said, leave them alone. But the Moabites wouldn't leave them alone, and they wanted to attack them. So they got this prophet Balaam. I'm not going to go into all the story. And Barak, the king, and he tried to get them to prophesy and curse this nation of Israel repeatedly. So much so that actually where God in all the laws instructs that the foreigners must be welcomed into Israel. If a foreigner comes in and is wanting to be part of Israel, they must welcome them in. The Moabites were explicitly excluded from that for 10 generations. God said they may not be part of Israel for 10 generations. And fascinatingly, if you go and look later on in the book, you'll see that to David, there's 10 generations of the Moabites. I think it's like that, something like that, right? But it's a, that's one of the parts that these people were, and not, they were antagonistic to Israel, but when Israel hadn't antagonized them at all. I think that probably gives us some context. And then I, I gave you a little one just now in the book of Judges, chapter 3. The second judge was against Moab. So Moab had taken them into captivity now for 18 years. They'd been in captivity. All right, so that's important. It's important to know that these guys were not just immigrating. They were going to a place that God had expressly forbidden them to go, to live among people that God had said they shouldn't live among, to marry people that God had said they shouldn't marry, out of the promised land Bethlehem, into Moab, marrying Moabites. It's important. And on and on we can go. I'll probably just do one more. And just to say that Naomi didn't have a single tragedy. This came out as well as we looked at the repetition. Naomi had a triple tragedy. She lost her husband. So within the space of 10 years, she loses her husband. And then the author is, is very keen to tell us that she lost two sons. On repeat, two sons, two sons, two sons. And Nathan is going to pick this up um, significantly in week three. But the, the importance of this in that time, I'm not going to deal with it this morning, but women were basically entirely reliant on the males of their family for any kind of income, for any kind of status, for any kind of safety and protection. Now the husband is gone, and then she would have been, now this is conjecture, it's okay, I've got two sons. Son one is gone, son two is gone. She's left absolutely destitute. And you'll see that consistently, this is the language in the beginning of the book of, 
of Ruth. You'll see that and you'll see it in what they have to do to survive. This is not a story of, of just joyful Ruth going because she wants to go and pick some wheat. This is a story of a family in absolute desperation and poverty, and it's the last resort. They have nothing else to do but for her to follow in someone else's field, picking up whatever she can because they have no more food in the pantry. All right, so let's take our rose-tinted glasses off on that. Now, that, I think, is enough, but just to give us the tool, repetition. We're going, we're looking for different things in the text that help us with it. So, with all of that... What do you think the big idea of the story is? What is the story trying to teach us? Anyone? Come on, Mark, you look sharp. I won't put, it, I won't put you on the spot, don't worry. You'll have people never coming back to church again. <laughs> what do you think the big idea is? Maybe just for, for 30 seconds, just chat in your group again and throw me some big ideas. All right, hit me with your best stuff. Someone, tell me. Someone, give me some big ideas. Let's have. Let's have like three or four or five. Restoration. Okay, we got restoration. But do you think that's maybe the story of the whole of Ruth? But we're not seeing that here because nothing's being restored yet. This is a dark story. Consequences. Consequences. Ooh. Definitely, there's something of that in there. Consistent disobedience. Anyone else? God is our provider. Yeah. 100%. Vulnerability. From, from, from Ruth and Naomi. And yeah, there's a vulnerability aspect. Go for it, John. God is just and has and grace. Yeah. Anyone else? Suffering and struggle. Struggle. Life is hard. Go for it, Donnie. Punishment. Hey, guys, does anyone see in this story a lack of trust? Does anyone look at the story and see Elimelech going, God has given explicit instruction. God has taken us to a promised land. God is judging us. God has sent a famine on us in this foreign land. But I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to take my family and I've got a plan. I'm going to take my family to another land. Oh, this stuff's starting to rhyme. Huh? <laughs> don't you think that's the... I mean, I might be wrong on this, right? That's why we do it all together. But don't you think that's the main thing that the author is trying to show us is that Elimelech decides that he's going to make his own plan. I had a, I had a one-liner somewhere. Rebecca, why don't you throw that, that little one-liner thing up there. Man makes a plan and the plan was bad. <laughs> that would be my one-liner from this story. If you look at it, like the plan that Elimelech made, it makes sense. There's a famine. Take your country. Go somewhere else. It makes sense if you don't understand the context. But when you're looking through the telescope the right direction and you see what he's doing and how he's in disobedience to God, and then suddenly you start to see, oh my goodness, he dies. Then his two sons die. Did you notice that the two sons had been married for more than 10 years? Do you notice something in there? There's no children, okay? Now, we're not preaching that when you can't have children, it's always a judgment of God or any of those things at all. But there's something here, if you go back and look and you see that these things, famine, judgment, barrenness, were things that God had said would happen when his people refused to obey him. I think the big part of this story is about trust. The biggest question, really... <laughs> I mean, that, that just, it completely lines up with, in those days, there was no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. That's what it lines up with, right? It's the, it's the exact context. Why did God send a famine? What was God's purpose in sending 
the famine. You, you, you might have to trust me on this one if you, don't, if you don't know your Bible that well yet, but I'll tell you that the Old Testament constantly speaks about a merciful God. Even the book of Judges, the fact that God continues to raise up judge after judge after judge after judge is, an, is a sign of the mercy of God. He always wants his people to turn back to him. He always wants them to turn back. He's like saying, Bethlehem, Judah, Elimelech, Israelites, repent, turn to God, come back to me, worship me. And Elimelech says, you know what? I think I'll make a plan. I'm not going to turn. I'm not going to repent. I don't see God as king. Now the irony of this, when you start to deep dive into these stories, do you know what the name Elimelech means? God is my king. That's what it means. And in this moment, Elimelech, who says, God is my king, he deserts God's promises. He goes explicitly against God's commands. He, he, he says, like God's word says, don't live among these people. And he goes, well, I'm going to immigrate and take my family there. And then I'm going to teach my sons to do the same. What's our third tool? The gospel. All right. How much is this story, this terrible story, it's a depressing Sunday morning story. I hope they're not teaching this in kids' church, right? How much does this story need the gospel, need the good news of Jesus in it? How, how, do, we, how do we, it's crying out for it, right? And, and, and guys, in the next five weeks, there are the most, I think, some of the most exquisite pictures of the gospel that you're going to see in the book of Ruth. Our, almost, almost our entire theology around the Redeemer comes from the book of Ruth. It's the only place where we find the two words, kinsman and Redeemer, put together in the Bible. Is, I think it's, how many times was it? 20, Batesy? You told me. 20-something times, I think, in the book. But, we're going to cover it in the next five weeks, but there's so much right now. There's already so much. Let me, let me, I wish that we had time to talk it through in our groups, but I'm just going to help us for the sake of time. All through Judges, we see that God keeps providing. All through Judges, we see that God keeps renewing His covenants. All through the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, we see God showing mercy again and again and again. But who's He showing it to? He's showing it to a people who can't keep it together. He's showing it to a people who keep on and on and on and on sinning like a dog that pukes and comes back to eat its puke so it can puke again. So that it, sorry, it's a very graphic picture of sin. But that picture was from that man over there, Peter Howard Brown, who taught that to me many years ago. It's a great picture, right? That's God is this merciful God and we are this sinful people constantly unable to do anything righteous some days it feels like ever. The story of Ruth does the same. It shows how God keeps providing. If this was the start and the end, if Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 to 5 was the whole story, it would be an awful story. Husband dead, two sons dead, disobedient, end of story. Instead... In the weeks ahead, we'll unpack the most powerful story of God working despite sin. God working despite bad choices. I don't think this is a book about consequences. Yes, there's consequences in there, absolutely. But it's God going, this is what you should have got, and instead, I give you, that's mercy, that's grace. If I steal a little bit, I don't want to take too much, but if I steal a little bit from the weeks ahead, later on we're going to see how this woman, Ruth, a Moabites of all people, from that nation that began in awful incestual sin, that Moabites, the people who unfairly attacked God's people without being provoked, a woman who entered into a, a sinful marriage, that marriage should never have happened. God had clearly told those Israelite men not to marry women from Moab, and they did. A barren marriage. 
Later on in the book, you'll see that Naomi says to Ruth and to Orpah, her daughter-in-laws, go home and worship your gods, little G. She's a, she's a foreign god-worshipping Moabites. And God intervenes in love, in mercy, in providence, in care. And you'll see in this book that Ruth becomes the, gra- the grandmother of King David. Just three generations. Grandmother. Was that two generations? However many generations. <laughs> the grandmother of King David. Right? It, you see that she becomes this woman. The great, 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 I don't know how many times, grandmother of Jesus Christ, who's in the line of David. And she's not the only one in the story. Most of the stories we have of women in the Bible, in the line of Jesus, are not good women. It's powerful. The gospel is, the good news is pulsating through the story that we read this morning. When we look at the context Or, another way we can look at it is to look at Elimelech. You can see Jesus. You can see a contrast to Jesus when you look at Elimelech, this man who would refuse. His name meant God is my king. In in coming to Sunday, he looked like the guy who had the tie. You know? He's He's the smart guy who's got his whole life together. He follows Jesus. He's at every Sunday. He tithes. Wow. Elimelech. But he's not that at all. In practice, he says, I'm my king. I will take my family where I want to go. Everyone did as they saw fit. Does that remind you of anybody? Right? It's us. It's me. And we can see clearly the obvious contrast to Jesus, who says, I only do what I see my father do. I only follow my king. We can see clearly the contrast to Jesus who was a king, but who acted like he wasn't. When you read that beautiful passage in Philippians 2, where Paul is exhorting the Philippians to live a life of humility and to live a life of servanthood, what does he point to? He points to Jesus. And he says, who was the king? Jesus, who was the king? And yet he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped or something to be used to his advantage. But instead he made himself nothing. Becoming a servant, submitting himself even to death on a cross. Elimelech, I'm the king by name, but I will do my own thing. Jesus, I am the actual king, but I will be the servant leader. I will give my very life so that people can be redeemed. We're nearly, nearly there. Are you with me still? Finally, finally, what about me in 23? What about me in 2023? Guys, we're not going to spend... More than a few minutes here, but what do you see in this story that applies into your life today? That's my question. I'm not going to unpack it in a in a very much this morning, but what what do you see in the story that speaks into your life today? We've done the heavy lifting. This is how you read God's word. You start the right way around. Get the telescope the right way around. Look at it properly. What is the context? When you, when you quote that I'm the head and not the tail, you better go and read the whole verse because it's a pretty scary verse, actually. I'm not sure you want to be in that verse. Really, go get the context. We have to start with the context of these things, just like we're doing this morning. And then we go right at the end. Now, where does the Holy Spirit want to reach into my heart and speak to Paul Hodson in 2023. That's where we end. Maybe you see yourself like a limelech. I'll make a plan. God helps those who help themselves, right? Anyone ever heard that? I want to ask you, do you really trust God with your life? Do you really trust God with your career? Do you not take a promotion sometimes because you don't think it's what God has for you? It's going to pull you away from your family or pull you out of church or pull you out of these things that God's Word clearly helps us see. Or maybe we don't see ourselves there, but we see ourselves as those who don't deserve mercy, who don't deserve God's forgiveness, who don't deserve God's grace. And we, and we see in the story that God gives it anyway. That in our worthless state, in our unable to ever do anything right state, that God still loves us, still pours out His 
grace on us. And then the very, very, very last thing I'm going to say, and this is actually massively important because I think we get all the way here. It's like that person that gets right to the end of the comrades and just before the bell, you know, that, that awful bell, they're like 10 steps away and the bell goes and it's sorry you didn't get your medal, right? Sometimes we, we do all the heavy lifting, we get right to the very last and then we fall at the hurdle of legalism. Legalism means following the rules or following the law so that God can approve of me, right? And I'll show you how we do that. We read and we understand the story. We do all the context and then we draw this line. Abimelech is bad. Jesus is good. I must try harder to be like Jesus. What an example Jesus is. And he is. That's true. But we must try harder to be like Jesus and less like Abimelech. Tomorrow morning, George, you're going to be more like Jesus and less like Abimelech. And your family are going to be better for it. And you're going to hold on with white knuckles, trying with all your might to be more like Jesus and less like Abimelech. You've fallen into legalism. We don't just look at Jesus as an example, because then it's a crushing example. If we look at Jesus and we say, I'm going to be like Jesus, good luck. We can't. That's the story of the good news. We can't stop there. If we stop there, we're in huge, huge trouble. We have to take it to the very last step, which is to go, God, what's different now? We're not in the Old Testament anymore. And when you read the Old Testament, that needs to be constantly in your mind. God is not pouring out a judgment on you. We don't look at Ukraine or look at Turkey and the earthquake. And every time we go, well, that's because they had Pride Month. <laughs> it happens, guys. This is what we're saying. Right? And that's drawing these lines like this without context. Where we, where we fought, legalism. It's because they didn't follow the Ten Commandments. Right? Now, we are exactly the same sinners. We are. You can't read the story and think you're Ruth. We're much more like a Limelech. That's the truth. That's my, it's my truth, whether it's your truth or not. It's my truth. Friend, we still can't keep the covenants. We still can't keep our promises. We still can't live without sin constantly in our lives. But Jesus came. But Jesus came and dies and is resurrected and everything changes. And the New Testament comes and says, now I am in Christ. I no longer have to follow the law. That's what it says. It says he fulfilled the law. That means it's done. It's finished. He says that Jesus is perfect because I can't be. That's the good news. That's the good news. It says in Ephesians, you can go and watch this on our website. We did a whole series on this for a long time, actually. But it says that we are hidden in Jesus. Literally, God looks at me and sees Jesus. That's what it means to be hidden in Christ. This is my new identity. This is who I am. And not only all these things that I'm forgiven and hidden in Christ, but simultaneously the New Testament teaches that God then also does give us power that we can defeat sin. That the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and our consciences are renewed and our hearts are made like flesh and so we can defeat sin. But I don't get any better at following the law. I get better at trusting Jesus. That's the, that's the part that changes. And so my prayer as we read Ruth is that as we read it correctly, as you read any book of the Bible, as you're reading it and studying God's Word, you're looking the right way through that telescope, that He will powerfully work in you, that He will powerfully work in me, that He will powerfully do life-changing work in our hearts so that we can be filled and we can, this is our vision, that we can fill Stellenbosch with the life and the hope of Jesus Christ. We can't do that with the Ten Commandments. We do that with a life that gets right to the end, right to when we're about to go, legalism, no, 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 no. Hang on, one more step. Jesus, forgiveness, grace. Father, I've been a little long this morning. Thank you for your grace over me. Thank you for your word. 
Lord, just seriously, thank you for how precious it is, how good it is to read it, how much we can draw from it into where the psalmist says, my soul pants like a deer thirsty for water. When we come to your word, Lord, we feel thirsty. We've tasted of the world. We've tasted of other ways of trying to fill these holes and these needs in our hearts, and, and, and they don't satisfy. And we come to your word, and suddenly a whole world is awakened to us. Lord, press the gospel into our legalistic hearts. Press the good news that Jesus has done it so that we don't have to. That Jesus is perfect because I can't be perfect. Press these wonderful truths into our hearts, Lord. Because, man, we go after legalism and rules and keeping rules and trying to show you how good we are. We really aren't. Pray for this congregation, Lord. Pray for those who don't know you this morning. Would you show them what a beautiful, surrendered life to Jesus looks like? Pray for those who know you and are struggling. Pray your grace. Teach us from your word in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.